0: This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu IPS. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we look at the ways in which science can help us understand faith as we talk to Professor Heidi Russell of the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. Later on the program, we take another exploration of the hinge point of science and faith as we explore the invention of the number zero. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen, I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Heidi Russell. She's an assistant professor at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. She received her Ph.D. in Religious Studies from Marquette University and her MDiv. M.A. from Washington Theological Union. Her work involves a variety of traditional theological subjects, such as the Doctrines of the Trinity and Theological Anthropology. She also has a special interest in the relationship between science and theology, specifically in the fields of neuroscience and quantum physics. She's the author of several books, including... The Heart of Rahner, The Theological Implications of Andrew Tallon's Theory of Triune Consciousness, as well as Quantum Shift, Theological and Pastoral Implications of Contemporary Developments in Science, and The Source of All Love, Catholicity and the Trinity. Professor Heidi Russell, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you so much.
0: There's so much here that I want to dig into, and I'm fascinated by all of it. So let's just start with this question of religion and science. So In contemporary conversations, we oftentimes hear it said that these two are antagonistic towards one another, and yet you've written on neuroscience, you've written on quantum physics, and so let me ask you this question right out of the gate. Are religion and science antagonistic to one another, or do you find them in some way to be complementary?
1: I find them completely complementary, which probably comes as no surprise. I really would agree with sort of the Thomas Aquinas approach, which would say that God works through secondary causes, so God is primary cause. What science studies is the secondary causes. So the two are completely complementary to one another. And so for me, in in the work that I do in theology, many of the developments in science today lend themselves to great new metaphors for talking about theology
0: having had a theological education myself, I remember at one point that there was a time in human history where theology was called the queen of the sciences. And now it has sort of given over that title to mathematics or at times to physics. So in what ways when someone is studying something like, say, the doctrine of the Trinity or theological anthropology, things that you are working on or doctrines that you, that you work on in your scholarly work, How does one apply a scientific approach or how does one even begin to think about uh, an intersection of that with a scientific question?
1: So when I'm using science in my work, I'm primarily using it as analogy. So when we're doing theology, we're already in the realm of analogy generally. When we're using words and language and concepts to talk about God, we're talking about something that is beyond all language, beyond all words, beyond all concepts. Interestingly, Today, a lot of science is doing the same thing. They're putting words and language, particularly authors who are writing for a popular audience, such as myself, they're putting words and language onto mathematical formulas or things that really defy any experience that we have. So if you're talking about the quantum level, there's nothing we experience in the macro level that works in the same way that the quantum level does. So they're already using analogy as well. So where I find the fascinating intersection to be is to look at the way they're using analogy. And then I'm taking things such as the way they describe the double slit experiment or particle wave complementarity. And I use that analogy to then talk about something that we try to explain in theology, such as, body and spirit or what you might call body and spirit complementarity.
0: Now, what you just mentioned, the double slit experiment or particle wave complementarity or or particle wave duality, we may have just left some of our listeners in the dust behind us with that. So let's take a moment and step back. When we're talking about these kinds of approaches to measuring the physical world, such as measuring the way that light acts in the world... When a scientist comes at these questions, what are they hoping to find?
1: Well, since I'm not a scientist, I I want to be a little careful in my answer there. You know, they're examining the physical properties and trying to figure out how things work and developing formulas to explain how things work. And in the end, they're hoping that it's going to have some concrete application in the world. So, you know, the new technology that we have today often comes from discoveries that are made in these other fields of physics, etc.
0: Well, I think about Michael Faraday and his lifelong attempt to try and figure out whether or not light could be affected by magnetism. And when he finally figured that out, it opened up for us I guess the entire modern world is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. Yeah and, and so when we look at someone like that who is looking at this abstract question, is light a wave is light a particle? Does light have only properties that are non-tangible or can it be affected by something like gravity or can it be affected by something like magnetism? I think oftentimes when we're in the cultural context we can think that science is all about the practical answers. But is it fair to say also that sometimes science is looking at answers that may have no practical effect in the immediate future?
1: Definitely. And I think depending on the scientists, there's a lot of scientists who who are very into the theoretical or the even the, the mystical to a certain extent. So I always say the fun thing about being a theologian is you don't have to pick a side. So as much as I've worked with like the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics, I've also read David Bohm's interpretations of quantum physics, which are the two are opposed to one another. And David Bohm does much more going into the realm of philosophy and, rea- you know, looking at what is reality and how are things interconnected. So in my book on the Trinity, I actually use David Bohm's interpretations looking at the interconnectedness of all things he is not looking at practical applications so much as he, as he's trying to figure out what is reality and what are the philosophical implications of the science
0: now i'm not sure is david bohm a theologian or is he a scientist
1: he is a scientist he's one of the scientists who would subscribe to the hidden variables interpretation of uh, like the double slit experiment, saying that there, there is something guiding, there is a hidden wave or a, oh, now I'm going to get outside of my realm without having him in front of me to read. But he he offers an alternative explanation and one that mathematically works out equal to the Copenhagen interpretation of the double slit experiment in quantum mechanics, but gives an alternate interpretation of the same data, if you will.
0: Now here's, I'm just going to make sure that we're catching our listeners up and let me use my own ignorance as a fulcrum point. So if I'm remembering correctly, the double slit experiment is looking at the way in which light can be measured. And the problem that it was trying to solve is that sometimes when you're measuring light, it acts like a particle, like a little bullet. And sometimes it acts like a wave. And we live near Lake Michigan, and so waves are part of our everyday life. But waves and particles physically act very differently. And when you measure light in one sense, it will show up sometimes in a wave-type state. And when you measure light in another sense, it'll, it'll show up in the particle or bullet-like state. And is my understanding that part of how it chooses to show up chooses being a weird word here, but it chooses to show up as a wave or a particle depending on how you've chosen to measure it. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. And so if you're, if you're measuring for a wave, it'll say, ha, I'm a wave. And if you're measuring for a particle, it'll say, ha, I'm a particle. That's confounding.
1: <laughs> yes, it is. Fascinating. I, this is what drew me into the whole topic of science in the first place is I was so fascinated by the double slit experiment. And yeah, another way of saying that is if you ask a particle question, you get a particle answer. If you ask a wave question, you get a wave answer. And so
0: you find an analogy in this to certain types of theological approaches. And so
1: flesh out for me kind of how that would work. Sure. So specifically with this topic, I was using it as an analogy to look at the relationship between body and spirit as a way to overcome substance dualism, where we see the body and the spirit as two separate things, as if God creates us with a body and then inserts a spirit inside to inside of us. And then somehow when we die, that spirit is kind of yanked out again and goes off to some other place, heaven, hopefully. You know, to, to get away from that very concrete way that we tend to think of our body spirit and to think of ourselves as one whole, which is body spirit. So you ask a body question, you get a body answer. You ask a spirit question, you get a spirit answer. But also within the realm of that, when we're looking at Particle and wave, we're talking about a wave of probability. The particle could appear anywhere in the universe, but there's going to be more probability of it appearing in one place and less probability of it appearing in another place when they're measuring to find out where the particle is. So, likewise, with our spirit being sort of our infinite possibility that we have as humans, but our embodiedness being the fact that I can't be all things. I have to make choices. I have to sort of collapse my spirit potential into concrete embodied choices and concrete embodied acts. And while I sort of have this infinite potential of being anything, in fact, my potential lives itself out as probability. It's much more likely that I'm going to make certain choices and be certain things, but it's not impossible that I could be other things.
0: Now, a person who is approaching this in sort of a naive way might want to say, yeah, 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 that's all nice. But at the end of the day, what is light really? (laughs) Is it really a particle and then it shows up sometimes as a wave? Is it really a wave and it shows up sometimes as a particle? Yes. What I'm hearing is that we should resist that urge to collapse it down to what it really is behind and instead to understand that it is beyond the both that we're able to measure. Is that a fair assessment?
1: So I think to say the answer would be yes. I want to say it's both-and. That's a very sort of Catholic theological position to say that it's both-and. I'm not sure that the scientists would go there. So I, I'm gonna abstain from answering what light really is for the scientists, but I'll answer from the body-spirit side that, you know, are we body, are we spirit? Yes.
0: This is Things Not Seen. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Heidi Russell. She's assistant professor at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're discussing her work at the intersection of science and theology. So you got fascinated by the duality problem of light showing up as a wave and a particle. For our listeners, tell that story. So when did you first encounter this problem and how did it begin to fascinate you?
1: So this is always a story I'm a little bit embarrassed to tell in front of scientists, but the honest answer is that I was watching, I watched the movie, What the Bleep Do We Know? And, you know, there's a lot of movement out there that takes the science and goes in directions with it that makes scientists extremely uncomfortable. And I suspect that movie is one of those. But in that movie, they had this segment on the double-slit experiment where they put it in cartoon. They had Dr. Quantum, and Dr. Quantum explained it. And that was just it for me. I I watched that explanation. To be honest, I'd never really heard of the double-slit experiment before that, and about this idea that they were actually talking about electrons versus looking at light photons. They were looking at electrons... That an electron could be a particle in some experiments, but then seem to be a wave in other experiments, and that there was no way of answering those questions you were asking earlier, you know, well, which really is it? You know, that there is no answer to that question fascinated me. And I started checking out books from the library on it and reading about it. And kind of it literally there's a there's a longer version of that movie that's called Down the Rabbit Hole that literally sort of took me down the rabbit hole.
0: And so is it safe to say that you did a large amount of kind of lay education in science? So you don't have a degree in science, but you've done a lot of reading.
1: Correct. So I am very dependent on those authors, those scientists who write for the general population. So authors like Brian Greene or Sean Carroll or um, Lee Smolin. There are a lot of great scientists out there who've made a concentrated effort. John Gribben is another one who've made a concentrated effort to take the science and put it into everyday language that somebody like me who doesn't have a science background and and also doesn't have a a huge math background, you know, the language of science is math. So somebody has to translate it into words and then also words that are comprehensible to someone who doesn't have an extensive science background.
0: Now, what I've noticed in this conversation so far is that you have been extraordinarily cautious in your language when you're discussing science, and I just want to highlight that for our listeners. So even though you've done extensive reading in what we might call popular science, you're not mistaking that, as you were just saying, for a facility in, in the actual ability to kind of do science the way that a scientist could. And so at several points, you've sort of highlighted and said, well, I don't know what a scientist would say, but this is what I have learned from my reading. And I'm not sure that a scientist would agree. But So talk to me about that caution.
1: Sure. Well, as I said, I think there's a lot of people that like to do things with something like quantum physics, which seems so mysterious and has this great complementarity that scientists are like, "Oh, wait a minute. Now, you know, there's something called Planck's constant. Once we get larger than Planck's constant, these laws of quantum physics don't apply to the macrophysical world. And so I want to be careful that I'm not making leaps. I'm trying to understand the science as best I can and, as I said, use it as an analogy. I'm not saying, for example, our body is particle and our spirit is wave. I'm just saying this is a good image that we can use just in the way... Aquinas used images from Aristotle to explain certain aspects of theology. But absolutely, I'm not doing science. I'm not a scientist myself. I'm not trained as a scientist. I like to once in a while have somebody who is a scientist look at what I'm writing and say, am I describing this accurately? Are there places where I need to tweak what I'm saying about the science because I'm you know, I mean, it's easy for me to read something in the science and misunderstand it. So I sometimes need people to check that part of my work for me. I always need people to check that part of my work for me.
0: Well, I'm aware that there are some in the religious realm, in the particularly in the fundamentalist Christian realm, who look at science with a great deal of skepticism for some of the reasons that we've just said. If you begin saying something like, light is simultaneously a particle and a wave— To an untrained ear, that can begin to sound like we're getting rid of objective reality and we're just going to dive into the pool of relativism. And so there's a real sense in which there's a desire on the part of some religious believers to have the macro world, the way that we experience the macro world of predictability and sort of cause and effect, for that to be in play all the way down. And so when you are working with these notions that when we pass through Planck's constant, things get a little weird on the ultra-microscopic level, on the quantum level, how does that not become something like anything goes, the world is madness, relativism rules? How do we keep a moral landscape in the midst of things being kind of up in
1: the air? Sure. Well, two things. First of all, it made a lot of scientists a little bit nervous as well, Einstein being one of them. You know, he was not totally on board with the whole Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. He was much more in the hidden variables school that there must be some explanation underlying this. We just haven't found it yet, but eventually we will. I actually think the opposite is true in the sense that the science, I think, can help us grapple with the ambiguity of the world we live in, the complex the complexity of the world that we live in today. We don't live in a world that's black and white. And I think religion does a disservice when it tries to act as if the world is black and white. It doesn't appreciate the complexity of God's creation and the complexity of who we are as human beings. And so in my own work, I've actually taken Einstein's theory of relativity and used it as a way to talk about how we in the theological and moral world might talk not of relativism, where anything goes, but relativity, where we can all recognize that I operate out of a frame of reference that's different from your frame of reference. And if we want to get at anything like what we might call the truth, we need dialogue. We need my frame of reference and your frame of reference. We need to hear people's stories. We need to go out and encounter people that do have a different frame of reference from what we have, whether those people are coming from a different race, a different sexual orientation, a different economic level. You know, if we're not talking to people that are different from us, then we're in that, what they like to call these days, the Google bubble, different political viewpoints That we need to hear from other people's experiences in order to understand who we are and who humanity is and and what this world is that we live in.
0: So I've just heard in your answer a lot of different foci coming together. So I've heard, first of all, a pluralism in terms of reference. Mm -hmm. So different people of different experiences will come at different questions with different answers. Right. Okay. Okay. But I've also heard a pluralism in terms of technique, because we've been talking about theology, which looks at the world in one way, and we're talking about science, which looks at the world in another way, in one sense, a kind of mystical versus a more concrete or physicalist interpretation of the world. But I've also heard now a political implication of that as well, where we have to be open to people of so vastly different experiences from what sometimes is classified as the normal that we would we would introduce a great deal of plurality into any conversation we might have about the best ends of how we order our political space. Am I hearing all of that in your answer?
1: Absolutely. And, and you know, again, I'm, I'm sort of dilettante when it comes to science, so I like to dabble in a lot of different areas. And one of the areas that also brought all of this to the fore for me was chaos and complexity, looking at chaos theory and complexity theory, and recognizing that life flourishes sort of on the edge of chaos, and out of that comes complexity. And I think that when we are willing to let go of our desire to have everything certain, and have everything black and white, what we find is life is very much more complex, but also very much more beautiful. And we see that in fractals, for example, the beauty of fractals. And we see that's very small things or changes in initial conditions can have very large impacts when you're looking at something in a nonlinear fashion. And so what that says to me, I guess, is two things. It says to me, my life might become a little bit more difficult and a little bit more complicated if I'm outside of my own comfort zone, but it will also become very much more beautiful the more human relationships that I develop. It also says something to me in terms of activism, which is that even if I can only make a very small change right where I am, that change could have much larger impacts. So sometimes we're paralyzed in the political world because we think, well, what can I do? I'm only one person. But perhaps my very small initial actions could have a much larger impact on the world than I can even predict.
0: And so when you're thinking about the ways that these vectors come together, you're thinking about your own life as a religious person. You're thinking about your life as a religious educator, because you teach in the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. When you think about the vector of the learning that you've done in science and the conversations that you have with people who are in the sciences, how then does this play out in terms of what you would then urge your students to do. So as you're bringing, I imagine, all of this rich tapestry into the classroom, are you hoping that your students will take away a certain point of view, or are you trying to enliven them to come to their own conclusions? So as a, as an educator, what are you trying to get out of all of this mix that you would bring to your students or to your readers?
1: Sure. I actually haven't taught a course specifically on science and religion. So that piece, we haven't explicitly explored it in the classroom. But of course, elements of this are always coming up in my, you know, I teach Christian doctrine. So elements of it are always coming up in our conversations. And I would say that precisely that, that I want my students to be open to hearing multiple viewpoints, be those scholarly viewpoints of reading different people, or, you know, my my students are all going into pastoral ministry of various forms. And so recognizing that the person that's sitting across from them in a pastoral ministry situation, that one of the key elements of ministry or the key element of ministry is listening, that you have to hear somebody else's experience before you can started a conversation with them. You have to listen first and you have to walk with people and you have to meet them where they're at. That's all part of ministry. So I think I would ask them to bring that to the to the dynamic.
0: We're speaking today with Dr. Heidi Russell. We'll be back in a moment. Things not seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com/notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Heidi Russell. She's an assistant professor at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. Dr. Russell, would you be comfortable at all talking a little bit about your own background? So you're, how were you raised in a religious household? What has your faith journey been like?
1: Sure. So... I was. I was born and raised Catholic. My mother was raised Lutheran. She became Catholic when she married my father. So I would say I was raised Lutheran Catholic. It's a little bit ecumenical perspective on Catholicism. I also went through my own sort of version of high school rebellion, where I started attending the Unitarian Universalist Church. I never stopped attending the Catholic Church. So on Sundays, I would go to both. And so that also, I think, really influenced me because that brought in a whole aspect of social justice and an exposure to world religions that I hadn't found in my own Catholicism and led me to do an undergraduate, a partial focus in my undergraduate studies on world religions. I finally rediscovered within Catholicism just the richness of the social justice teaching within Catholicism, which I had not been exposed to as much in my upbringing, and then also just the openness of Catholicism to world religions as well. So I've kind of brought it all back together.
0: You mentioned just a moment ago the social justice tradition. So for listeners who may be unfamiliar with that, what does that mean?
1: So what we would refer to as Catholic social teaching And there are various principles to it, but it would involve things like a preferential option for the poor. It would involve things like the care for the environment, subsidiarity. There's a whole body of teaching within the Catholic Church that's referred to as Catholic social teaching that looks at how we interact with the world and and what we think are the grounding principles for how the world should function.
0: And you say you hadn't been exposed to that when you were being raised Catholic. So what was it that made you aware that that existed?
1: I really didn't come into a great deal of knowledge about that until I was doing my, my Master of Divinity at Washington Theological Union. It was really probably the first time I heard the term Catholic social teaching.
0: And when you were exposed to that, were you exposed to it in a way that was like, oh, here's a secret trove? Or was, was it exposed like, how could you not have heard about this?
1: Uh, probably a little bit of both. I mean, it is, I sort of feel like it's sometimes the Catholic church's best kept secret, but yeah, there, I mean, once you sort of get into that realm of teaching and if you're, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's maybe a little bit of both and. Yeah. And so
0: as you're going through this theological education, you are drawn to uh, certain types of training. And so what was it that made you choose to go the path of theology?
1: Sure. So I was, um, like many people, coming to the end of my college career, and I wasn't sure where I was going to go. And I was discerning a vocation to the Racine Dominicans at the time as well. And I knew some Augustinian novices. The parish that I belong to is an Augustinian parish. And it was that summer, and we were talking one day, and one of them said to me, "Well, Heidi, have you ever considered getting your MDiv? And I said, what's an MDiv, Master of Divinity? I'd never heard of this degree before. Uh, but from that point on, it became very clear in my own discernment that what I was feeling called to was ministry, not religious life. And so that was a, a very clear turning point for me. And then I did end up going to Washington Theological Union, and I got my MDiv. And so then it was in my theology courses that I sort of fell in love with Carl Rahner, the Jesuit theologian. And some of my professors suggested I go on for my Ph.D., and I was resistant to it at first, thinking I really wanted to go into parish ministry, and eventually I just, I really wanted to study Rahner's theology more in depth, and so I did go on for my Ph.D., I, even there, I was a little bit non traditional because after my first year of my Ph.D. program, I took a year's leave of absence, and I did a CPE program, which is a chaplaincy and personal development training program. I did a residency working as a chaplain for a year, and then I went back to my Ph.D. part-time and worked in the parish full-time so that I could have both that ministerial side but also do my Ph.D. There's better balance for me.
0: Now, what was it about the work of Karl Rahner that you fell in love with? What what attracted you to that?
1: Uh, reading Karl Rahner for me was like having someone put into words something I had felt my entire life, but wouldn't have been able to articulate. So it was like, yes, that's what I believe. So Rahner has a fantastic theological system. You know, everything from his understanding of God is incomprehensible mystery, but incomprehensible mystery, which draws near to us in Christ and in the Holy Spirit, what we would call grace, understanding the human person as this openness to that infinite mystery, understanding the person of Christ as this fully human, fully divine, you know, being the offer of God to us and our acceptance of that offer of God's love of God's self gift. There's just so much in his theology that resonated with me.
0: And so as you've now done this theological training, you say you also along the way did chaplaincy, you did a CPE. Was that in a hospital setting or what sort of setting was that in?
1: So I had done one unit of CPE in the hospital when I was doing my MDiv. And then I did what's called a residency, which is three units of CPE. And that was in a continuum of care facility. So everything from independent living to nursing home, hospice, Alzheimer's care.
0: And so you were dealing with people at every stage of their living and their dying. Is that fair to say?
1: Yes. In fact, when I was in the hospital, I worked in the NICU. So literally, I was with, the, with the, the newborn babies. The NICU is the neonatal intensive care unit. So with babies who had just been born in one aspect of my chaplaincy and then people at the end of their life with the other aspect of my chaplaincy. What are
0: some of the lessons that you drew from those experiences that you feel still impact you now?
1: One of the things that always just humbles me is just the encounters with people and their life stories, the gift of being able to walk with people, to see them at the most precious moments of their lives, at the most vulnerable moments of their lives, moments where they're experiencing deep grief, where they're experiencing deep joy, you know, from Watching a family go home after a NICU stay where they've been, you know, their baby's been in the hospital for months, and they finally get to that day where they get to walk out of the hospital with that baby was amazing. On the flip side of that, baptizing a baby who was going to be removed from life support and would die within hours of the, of the baptism. I mean, just profoundly life changing moments.
0: And I'm aware that you've also written about being a foster mother and foster care as well. And I wonder if you'd be
1: willing to share a little bit about that. So are you currently a foster mother yourself? I am, though I have we have an adoption date scheduled with my daughter. We are moving from foster care to adoption.
0: So for listeners who may be unfamiliar with that process, what's the difference between being a foster parent and being an adoptive parent?
1: So generally when you're a foster parent, the first goal is always reunification. So you you're parenting a child... And the parents, the biological parents of that child are given certain provisions of things that they need to do by the court system in order for a successful, healthy, safe reunification with the child. So in an ideal world, you're working with parents. It's not always possible, but, you know, you want to be doing everything supportive of that process to help that family move to a point where they can reunify I was in a little bit of a, I mean, I definitely was a foster parent on that road, but I've always been an an adoptive resource as well. So, you know, when they're looking at placements in both of the cases, for me, they were looking for someone who was going to be an adoptive resource for the child should reunification not work out.
0: And so you are now at that point where you're moving through the process of having this person who had been with with you in foster care, now become a permanent part of your family. Correct. Yes. And
1: how does that feel? It's amazing. It's It's been, nothing moves fast in the in the foster care and adoption world. So we've been in this place for almost a, a year, not quite a year, maybe nine months, where things have been pretty much like we've known that it's probably going to end in adoption. Prior to that, there's a lot of ups, there's a lot of up and down. There's a lot of emotional up and down. There's a lot of mixed feelings. So there's a kind of a relief that we're coming to this moment of permanency, both for the child and for our family, that we know that this is going to be permanent now. But there's always grief in thinking about the biological family. It is a severing of that relationship, and we can never take that lightly. It's a deep tragedy. So that there's a saying... And I'm not sure I'm going to get it right, but it's it's a common one in the fosters to adopt world. And I apologize. I don't even remember. I think it was Jodi Landers who said it. But she says, you know, the privilege of another woman's child calling me mother and see, I'm going to get emotional. I apologize. Um, never do I underappreciate the both the gratitude I feel for that, but the depth of that tragedy. My joy comes at the expense of another person. It's another person's grief and my children live at the juncture of that moment where they always know that they lost something in life. They lost their biological family and that is a real pain and loss for them. And yet our joy and our family is a blessing. It's a blessing in our lives, but I I would never for a moment want to say like, Oh God meant for these children to be with me because I don't believe God works like that. God doesn't work through other people's tragedy. But I do think God can work in love, and that's what I hope is most prevalent in our situation.
0: What I'm so moved by in the answer that you just gave me, and thank you, first of all, for the trust, both for me and for the listeners in what you just shared, but the Catholic Church, in my understanding— takes the family as the sort of primary unit for everything. It's the primary unit for the direction of one's faith life. It's the primary unit for education and for and for all the things that we're supposed to use to prosper. And what, what really moved me in, in the answer you just gave is how the answer that you just gave is trying to honor that truth of the Catholic Church. Is That's what I heard anyway, that you're not saying just my individual family's benefit, but you're recognizing that families... There's a give and take here that's that's happening.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And the more in both the, obviously in the foster world where, you know, again, the primary goal is always reunification, but in the adoptive world as well, the more you can keep those connections and those doors open, the better. It's not always possible, but in an ideal world, adoption that biological family is always your child's family, and so they become part of your family as well to a greater or lesser extent depending on the circumstances. So to to always honor that and recognize that as being a very vital and important part of your child's life.
0: This is Things Not Seen. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And... That's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Heidi Russell. She's assistant professor at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're discussing her work at the intersection of science and theology. Well, we've gone through a large range of topics in this conversation, and as as it draws to a close, one of the things that I often ask my guests is a pair of questions, and I ask what it is that continues to frustrate them at the end of whatever it is that we've been talking about. And then I also pivot from that to ask what it is that continues to give them hope. And so I'm gonna ask you that pair of questions. And so the first one is, as you look at your work in religion and science, and as you look at your work as an author and an educator, as you look at sort of your continuing, your continuing work in the world as a person who is trained in clinical pastoral care, what is it that continues to frustrate you?
1: I think today I would say what continues to frustrate me is the divisiveness in the world, the fact that so often we seem to still let hate win instead of love. I'm, you know, I believe strongly in a God of love. So maybe this moves to the second half already. But, uh, you know, I do believe strongly in a God who is love and is connection and is relationship. And so much we see going on in the world today seems to be severing relationships and creating division and fracture rather than unity. And, and by that, I don't mean false unity, but the unity that comes from diversity. So not uniformity, not that we're all the same or that we all think the same, but celebrating the blessing that with as diverse as we all are, we can still experience the unity that comes through relationship, through being authentic with one another and listening to one another. Well, Dr. Heidi Russell, it is a pleasure to talk to you, and I have enjoyed so much of this conversation
0: because it has gone all over the place. And thank you for taking the time both to speak to me, but also to share your work with my listeners.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: We've been speaking today with Dr. Heidi Russell. She is an assistant professor at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. So over in the United Kingdom, there's a show that's an awful lot like Things Not Seen. In fact, it's got a very similar name. It's called Things Unseen. Our show has a friendly relationship with their show. Every once in a while, they'll run a piece that we do. And from time to time here on our program, we've run pieces that they've produced. Today, since we've been talking about science and faith on this episode, I thought it would be fun to introduce you to an episode that they did, which deals with that same topic. If you like this, at the end of this short piece, there'll be information about how you can listen to more episodes from Things Unseen. They do great stuff. I hope you enjoy.
2: My name is Jay Khani, and in Faith by Numbers, we are going to talk about zero from the Hindu tradition. You see, I teach Hinduism at Eton College, and my background is actually not religion, but it is theoretical physics. So I come from a strongly mathematical background, so I enjoy talking about numbers all civilization were struggling to articulate the number zero, something that doesn't exist. So how do you articulate or how do you kind of give an icon or, or, or a symbol for that number? So there, there has been a struggle. So, I mean, you can imagine, suppose you wanted to write, say, 200. So if you wanted to do it by just adding one, two, three, four, it would be kind of going on forever. So the best way would be to say that, let us have a place system. So we'd say, okay, to indicate the number 200, which is a large number, let us say that the unit amount is zero. Let us say that tens are zero and the hundreds are two. So 200 becomes two, zero, zero. So it's a very important kind of innovation by humanity to try and grapple with large numbers. So this is one aspect. And that I'm suggesting very strongly came out of India. And the first person perhaps who did was Brahma Gupta in the 7th century. So this is how it started. And the Hindu traders were using this system for their calculations. So the Arab visitors, we had a lot of Arabs who used to come and trade with India in the 7th century. So they picked up this numbering system and, of course, used it for their own calculations. So it became a very important tool for trading. And then with the Arab traders, he went into the Middle East and went into the European civilization, etc. But apart from the place system, there is something much more dramatic about the number zero. This is a philosophically highly charged up, and very important aspect to explore. The idea of modern cosmology, which is in agreement with the esoteric Hindu tradition, is... We all started without any beginning or without anything. It's a spontaneous creation. And here is this idea that from nothingness, something springs up. And this idea is that the foundation of modern cosmology and the Big Bang Theory... Because it doesn't say there is a beginning and then you have beginning of time because time begins, space begins. So they unfold. So from nothingness, something appears. You see, there are two kinds of Hindu faith. There's a kind of very highly narrative-oriented, personality-oriented, colorful storytelling Hindu faith. And there is a more esoteric, much more philosophically oriented Hindu tradition which relates very closely with this idea of spontaneous creation without a God sitting in the heaven. So one of the most ancient texts we have, the scripture of authority called the Nasadiya Sukta, says something Beautiful. It says, in the beginning, you can't say there was something or there was nothing. Neither something nor nothing. This is the beautiful way the world starts. And it ends in a very dramatic manner saying, it is very likely that God came afterwards. This is the right to the heart of Hindu tradition. You see, modern cosmology says the following, and in fact it's a well-tried and tested theory, that space and time unfold and stretch themselves this is called the big Bang theory. there's no actually physical bang. It basically space and time unfold and in the process comes about this manifested universe that we you know, encounter in front of us, all the galaxies, everything pops out from nothingness. But a question still arose. who pressed the button? What caused the Big Bang? This is a very serious question. And of course, many theologians will like to kind of latch on to this saying, Of course, we agree with Big Bang now, but surely there must be some chap called God who pressed the button, saying, come on, let's get started. Because everything we see, everything we encounter seems to have a cause. So the creation itself must surely have a cause. This is the kind of argument proposed by many theologians. What is the Hindu take? You'll be surprised. The Hindu take is very interesting. He says... Not two things, but three things unfold for creation to come into being. From the unmanifested, means from nothing else, something that is manifested, something pops out when three things unfold. So Mr. Lakhani, what three things? These are Sanskrit terms. I'm not making anything up. They say desh, kar, nimit. Desh means space. Kar means time. And nimit means causation. So they are saying universe comes into being when three things unfold, not only space and time, like modern cosmology, but the concept of causation, things are linked with each other through cause and effect. That too pops up when creation comes into being. So if you ask Stephen Hawking, what was there before Big Bang, Mr. Hawking? he will say, don't ask the question. There was no time, so you can't say what was before the Big Bang, so the question is irrelevant. The Hindu will say the same thing. What caused the Big Bang, you may ask him. It's very easy. Causation comes with the Big Bang, so don't say who caused the Big Bang. This is, if you like, the very esoteric ideas at the heart of Hindu tradition which sit well with modern cosmology. And you can hear this program
0: again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in Beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Our show was made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's patreo dot com slash notseenradio.